this is Jordan Van Trump with Farm Tank. Farm Tank is an organization I formed for individuals and business owners to learn the latest in innovation, execution, and motivation. I believe there's a huge demand for hearing how others have become successful in life. I'll be traveling the world talking to some of the most influential CEOs and founders to help everyone learn and be more successful in their near future. The agricultural community has been extremely grateful to me and my family, so I'd like to do the same for everyone else and share my insights with you. With that, coming to you live with Farm Tank, Jordan Van Trump. Hey everybody, I'm super excited today that I have the opportunity of speaking to Mary Shellman, who is recognized as an expert in global food and agribusiness sector. Mary holds a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from the University of Kentucky and a master's degree in general management from Harvard Business School. She is also the former director of agribusiness program at the Harvard Business School. Right now, Mary is on the board of Crop Enhancement as well as Village Capital. She's also the founder of the Mary Shellman Group. With that, I'd like to welcome Mary to the show. Good morning, Jordan. How's it going today? Good? It's good. It's good. All set here in Boston. It's uh, a chilly morning. Yeah, it's uh, cold here in Kansas City as well. Been yep. uh, snowing like crazy. Yep. We're expecting some of that tonight, so I guess it's that time of the year. Yes, definitely is. Uh, let's just start with your background in agriculture from uh, the very beginning when you were growing up. You've told me you, your father bought a farm when you were in junior high, about 15 minutes away from where you grew up. Uh, now you own the farm. Tell us a little bit about this farm. Well, it's a, it's a 475 acres, kind of big by a lot of standards, certainly big by East Coast standards, small by Midwest standards. It's corn-soybean rotation. Um, my dad was one of the the first people actually in the United States that worked on bringing no-till farming into the country. He was a farm equipment dealer and a mechanic before that, and so that's really where my experience in agriculture began. Was going around with him as he would go out and um, you know visit farmers either to work on equipment or to you know to sell them something. So the meetings over the kitchen table after you know supper time, when it was you know, to talk about what they might need and what that pricing might be. And I was a real daddy's girl, so I always like to ride along. But, um, but like I said, he was, uh, you know, he worked on no-till in Kentucky in the 60s. And Kentucky was actually the heart of where no-till began here in the United States. And so the farm that, farms that he bought in the 70s, um, once he went in and basically took out um, fence rows and, you know, did some remedial work on the ground. Those farms have been under no-till ever since, and so they haven't had a plow on them in, you know, for now it's what's been 40 years, almost, uh, you know, move, moving on 50 years. Do you think having a farm back then influenced you to work in agriculture now? Well, you know, I never set out to, to work in ag, so it was never even crossed my mind, so I grew up in a in a town that was about 12,000 people, 15,000 people. Um, it was not the, you know, it was the county seat, but certainly not um, a, an urban environment at all. But my relatives were all, you know, they were, some were farmers and firemen and postmen and, you know, were in the military. So, you know, what you might call a real working class background. And in this town that I was in, people really didn't know, you know, I had no ex ex kind of exposure to, um, kind of to, to what careers were very much. I just kind of knew what I saw. And then when I was in high school, somebody said to me in my physics class, and I was a good student, turned around and said to me, you know, I'm going to be an engineer, Mary. You're really good in math and science. I think you should be one too. And that um, really led me to study chemical engineering at the University of Kentucky. And I did that, though, with the idea that I didn't necessarily want to be an engineer. I wanted to go into industrial sales because I thought that was a really cool thing. The guy that called on my farm or my father in his farm equipment dealership, you know, um, and called on other dealers. He drove around in his car. He got to talk to people. And I liked the idea of not sitting behind a desk. So that's what I did for the first four years after my my. Uh, my bachelor's degree in engineering, but then I decided, I was in Oklahoma at the time actually doing that, and um, I decided that I needed to do something else. So I had heard 
about some colleagues of mine that worked that had gone and done an MBA because they wanted to do something next. I had no idea what that was. And it was when I went to Harvard Business School that I met this uh, very famous professor by the name of Ray Goldberg, who's the father of agribusiness. And in taking that course, that one course in my MBA curriculum, I thought, wow, I really like this. You know, we're talking about things that I actually know something about. I grew up in, um, you know, dealing with farmers, but also, you know, and I like thinking about, you know, the agriculture and the food industry. So that's how I ended up um, making a decision and now have been doing that for, you know, for 30 some odd years. Yeah, you mentioned a little bit about going to school, Kentucky, Harvard. I'm really interested on your journey to Harvard. Yeah. Uh, I just don't think it's one you see every day. You started at Elizabethtown Community College, is that right? That's right. Then you went to Kentucky, and then you ended up at Harvard. I just kind of wanted to know. Right. You just don't see that a lot. I just wanted to know like, what your worth ethic was like getting there and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I guess Jordan, it was, you know, one of the reasons why I think I, you know, I was naive about the whole thing. It was, uh, you know, my parents neither had, had gone to college, but, you know, valued, um, certainly valued education. And their expectation was is that, that I would go on and the, the city school system that I was in compared to the county schools around me. They, there was an emphasis on, you know, going on and continuing your education. But, you know, I really... Um, didn't have any role models in that space. You know, I had some cousins that had, had gone on, but most of them had become teachers. And I knew I didn't want to become a teacher, but I chose a very safe path myself. And, um, you know, for some of my high school friends, we ended up, you know, doing our first two years at a community college in my hometown. And it, because we were kind of afraid to go off to you know, a main campus someplace else and move off. And that turned out to be fantastic for me because um, in um, going to a community college, it was, you know, a little bit bigger, but I also met some really important, had some important teachers there who helped me um, see maybe what I would say is a bigger world. Um, I had some opportunities to travel to um, a, a trip outside um, to the, UK for five weeks with a, one of our college programs and um, just this idea that there were other things to do. And then so I went on to the University of Kentucky in Lexington to finish my engineering degree. My, my friend went to another university because that was a little smaller, but for engineering you had to go to UK. Um, and there I also saw some opportunities. Things would just pop up, like there was a, an announcement on – the bulletin board for a program in Washington one summer to where you could go up and spend the summer there and study um, kind of how um, policy is made. And I thought that was interesting, and so I applied and I did it. So I've always been just really curious and looking for that next thing. It wasn't a set plan to, you know, oh, I'm going to go to Harvard someday. It never even crossed my mind um, whenever I was at then, you know, in my job in these four years at, at the time it was Texaco and, and doing industrial sales and I decided to do an MBA, I thought, well, gee, I don't know anything about this. If you're going to go, um, you should go to a good school. So I picked up a college, uh, you know, co copy of the what it, U.S. News and World Reports and looked at the top two schools were Harvard and Stanford. And I thought, well, gee, you know, if I'm going to spend this time, I should go to the best school. So I applied to both of them and hoped that I would get in one and not the other. So I would say in my you know, the choices that I've made have always been driven by curiosity, not by a plan. I always wanted to see what was over the next hill. And, you know, so no long-term dream, I want to go to Harvard, but always, like, what's the next opportunity? What's the next uh, interesting thing to do? And um, I, that's, a, you know, a, it's kind of how I've even managed my career that way. So, well, you might say that's not very strategic, but I've had some really great experiences because of it. Where do you think you would be if you didn't get into Harvard or Stanford for your MBA? Well, no, that's a really good question. I've never gone back to, to think about that. I, get, I might still be selling industrial lubricants in, uh, you know, out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, it, you know, I don't know, Jordan. I never, never even crossed crossed my mind that it wouldn't work out. So maybe, like I said, a lot of naivety. I had no idea it was hard to get in. And um, if I had 
known it was hard to get in, I might not have applied because of not wanting to risk that failure. So I can't even follow that path for you. Yeah, that's uh, definitely hard to predict, I would say. And it seems like the stars aligned in the right way for you. Uh, absolutely. Um, you mentioned a little bit about Ray Goldberg. He's he's the man who coined the phrase agribusiness. I did a little research on him. Yep. Uh, could you just tell us a little more about him? Well, Ray is just amazing, uh, amazing person to find at Harvard Business School. You know, so I was there. Now it's been, you know, 30-some years ago. Ray was, I thought he was old at the time. He's a lot older now. He's up in his 90s, and he's still very active. But um, he had been invited. Um, he was a farm boy from North Dakota that had um, an ag, had gone to Harvard and, as an undergraduate and then did an ag econ degree afterwards, not at Harvard, but um, at Minnesota, I think. And had been invited back to Harvard Business School by um, the dean at the time, and this was in the late 40s, early 50s. And it, the dean actually had um, experience in the food industry, um, only dean that, that that's that been the case. And the dean was concerned about the security of you know the U.S. food supply, and thought that there would be opportunities to bring more modern business practices to the way that, you know, we do ag and food. And so I invited Ray Goldberg and also um, a former sec assistant secretary of agriculture both to come to the school. And they were um, working in this space in an area very unusual, right, because um, I, no other major business school at the time and still not today, you know, really has anything to do that's called agribusiness. And Ray, though, had um, an amazing ability to think and to connect what I would say farm to fork. Um, he talked early about value chains and the importance of, you know, um, farmers producing what the market wanted rather than the, you know, producing what they're good at in order to, you know, make that chain more responsive and more efficient. So he has a body of work now that, you know, spans, um, you know, 70 years that has really impacted the industry, not just on a, you know, a national basis here in the U.S., but um, internationally. And, you know, I was very fortunate to, you know, to take Ray's class and then to work with him as a research assistant and then to, you know, have been in his universe um, over the last, you know, 35 years or so. Tell me, tell me this. Uh, what would Ray tell that average everyday farmer um, to make their farm more successful in the future? Well, he would say, first of all, you have to be forward-looking, I think. And, you know, the second um, thing is that you need to pay attention to what the market wants um, rather than just what you want to grow. And to do that, you need to understand the you know, markets on a bigger picture, and this is not just commodity markets, but basically those um, forces of, uh, you know, that, that you know, drive markets, drive demand, drive supply. But the really important thing about Ray is he would always talk about the importance of leadership in um, the agribusiness of food industry on a basis. He would always say, you know, there's no global secretary of agriculture. Um, you know, yes, there's one in the U.S., but globally, you know, it's about this isn't a local business. This is actually a global business about how we feed the world. And um, that it's leadership, you know, industry leaders, farm leaders really need to make that work together rather than, um, you know, depending on somebody else to, to, you know, to make those calls because there is no glo global leadership in that in that space. Um, in your opinion, wh what do you think the market wants right now for, from farmers? Well, I think farmers right now. So what I see happening is actually, um, you know, kind of on a short-term basis, right, you know, tough times. I think on a, because of the prices, I think, though, what's happening is that there's a lot more awareness on the consumer side. Um, we talked about consumers today are engaged and empowered. They actually care a lot more about where their food comes. They care about how it was produced. So I think what the market wants from farmers um, is more information to know that, you know, the farmer, the producer that's um, out there every day 
is, you know, running their operation in a way that it's better tomorrow than it is today. And when I think about that, whether it's about soil health or whether it's about animal health or whether it's about, you know, how we use resources, so, um, you know, a broader definition of sustainability, I think that's what the market wants. Um, we're still having some trouble about, you know, whether, you know, how does that get paid for. And a lot of it, you know, that I see, it actually gets paid for on the farm, but that's hard to know in the, in the short term. And it's not paid for in the farm in the sense that costs get pushed down. It's actually um, that you make an investment today that pays back over the longer run because as you're measuring things, then you get better at managing those things. Um, and that's the great power today that we have, um, great opportunity around, you know, technology, around information, data, um, you know, being able to do analytics, um, whether it's on, you know, production, um, and being able to tie together not just what happened this year, but by what happened in the last, you know, the past years and, you know, what might happen in the future years. So I think we're at a really exciting time, but there's still a lot, you know, if we look at it just with this moment, um, you know, I know that, you know, prices are, are challenging and farm returns are challenging. Yeah, prices are definitely challenging, and uh, we definitely see that on our end on the blockchain side of things. We're seeing a lot higher premiums for farmers growing on that side and whatnot. But uh, let's stay on the topic of uh, Harvard with your opportunity with Ray. You became the director of agribusiness at Harvard Business School for 11 years, which is a huge accomplishment. One thing I wanted to ask you about that is uh, what were you teaching these uh, students in this program yeah. that you believe would set them apart from the rest of the people? Was there a different level of thinking you were using when you were yeah. teaching everybody? Um, yeah, and just to clarify, the, the agribusiness program at Harvard Business School is really geared towards executives. It's not uh, an MBA course. So there, it, the Harvard MBA is a general management MBA. There's no specializations. There's no concentrations. It's really, um, you, you have great freedom to, to take what you want, and it's really turning out folks that, that might have some intersection with the food industry, but really very little. Um, so, and there's one agribusiness course that's offered as an elective, which some, you know, maybe, you know, 70 students out of 900 students in a year might take. So that's not the focus of the agribusiness program there. But the real focus is a, an, an executive course that um, Ray Goldberg started in 1961. So that's going, been going on now for, you know, some odd, you know, 60 some odd years. Um, it's, well, not quite 60, 50 some odd years. And, um, and that's a three-day program that runs every January, and it's geared towards trends. So um, executives, um, senior managers from all sectors from all over the world come to Boston and every year do um, 11 or 12 new case studies. That's the way that Harvard Business School runs their entire educational program is through case studies. And um, this, unlike other executive courses, this agribusiness program is one that you can come back and do over and over and over again because every year there's a new set of cases talking about the trends that are important in the world. So, um, you know, during my time there, I was responsible for looking and trying, you know, bringing in, you know, what are these trends? What should um, company executives, farmers uh, be thinking about and how their business needs to change in response to those trends? And how can we showcase those trends through the lens of a case study, which is, uh, you know, a, a basically a story written about a specific um, company or institution. It might be about Nestle. It might be about, you know, Bungie. It might be about, you know, Cargill on a particular business situation. And um, so what's different about this program, it's always forward-looking. It's not like, oh, here we're going to define agribusiness, here's the way the supply chain works. It's about what's happening tomorrow that you need to do something different today about. And that's the real difference 
um, in this, this approach from, you know, that I worked with at Harvard Business School. So you give the students some freedom and uh, let them get a little more hands-on than just studying in the textbooks? Oh, there are, there are no textbooks. There's no textbooks at Harvard Business School. Um, it's, you know, the idea is, is that if you do something over and over, so in the MBA program, for example, um, the course you do about 500 classes through a two-year program, 500 classes equals 500 cases, it becomes an automatic response. Um, the way that you look at a case, that you diagnose a case, that you figure out, you know, what information you need, how do you, you know, go about approaching that decision. So it's a very different way of, of, of approaching education. It's much more engaging. It's much more thought-driven. And the idea is, is, you know, if you're out running your business, Jordan, and you're making a decision, you don't go reach for a textbook on the shelf to say, gee, what framework should I use to make this decision about, you know, how am I going to market my, you know, my podcast here? Um, you do this based on your you know, internal knowledge, and maybe you need to go out and ask some expert someplace to help you with that. But, um, but really, it's, you need the, the framework, even if you ask an expert, to be able to, you know, ask the right questions and have him then to look at the right things. So that's the approach is to, by doing these cases, by talking about these real-world challenges, and what the, you know, the, the leader of that business does in approaching that challenge, that helps you to think about it. And, and cases aren't written to be right or wrong. They're written to provoke discussion in the classroom. So you know, when we do this um, executive program for agribusiness every January, you have 200 business leaders there from all over the world. They're split up into two classes of 100 each. And a case, you know, for instance, one on Let's say it's on uh, Driscoll's, uh, you know, the world's largest berry company. And the case might be looking at Driscoll's use of technology to connect the supply chain from farm to fork and how they use that to help uh, manage their business and deliver delight to their consumers, which is their mission, um, by reading about what they do and then discussing it in the classroom and saying, you know, does this make sense? Uh, you know, why did they take this approach? Was this a good investment? Um, what were the key elements in it? You know, what in the world is going on leading them to make this change, which is actually an expensive change? And then what should they do next? You have the conversation, that discussion around, and everybody brings their background into that discussion, and you get a very rich conversation then because you might know more about, you know, farming in Kansas, and I might know more about selling berries in Boston. And we put those together, and it's, we both learn something from each other. Some of it could be directly related to the Driscoll's case, but more often it's related to the way we think about the, the industry. So you might think, wow, I never realized, you know, consumers in Boston were thinking about these things. I can take that back to my farm and respond to it in this way. Or maybe there's, you know, consumers around Kansas City that also think this way. So, you know, I can start talking about my business this way rather than another way. So it's a very different approach to learning, and it's one that is very powerful. Um, I just met somebody. Um, I came back from a trip to, San, to Sacramento. I was talking to a supermarket company out there. I met their director of store operations, and he said, um, and I was talking about what I've done in the past, you know, being at Harvard Business School, writing, you know, 70, 80 of these case studies. And I said, you know, and so I wrote one on Taylor Farms. That's a big produce um, supplier in California. He said, I did that case. And he could tell me about that case and, um, you know, the conversations around that. And he remembered it, where if I had said, oh, I wrote your textbook, he'd say, oh, I don't really remember what's in the textbook. I 100% agree with you. I, uh, I went off to school and worked in the agriculture sector now with my dad, but I uh, didn't take the normal route many would take studying type of agriculture. I actually studied English and philosophy. kind of taught me a little bit how to think for myself, uh, a little more forward thinking, and I'm uh, thankful I did that. And I think it's benefited me a lot in the long run, just uh, similar to what you're saying about the Harvard Business right. students. Uh, I wish I had that right. opportunity, but unfortunately I did not. Well, I was reading, I was doing some research on you, and let me find the quote. You said sure. the biggest constraint in agriculture is there's a need for people and talent 
So uh, I just want to know um, why you think this. What's uh, what's really going to excite people to get into agriculture yeah. in the future, and uh, how we're going to do it? Yeah. Well, that's one of the things. When I went back to Harvard in um, 2005 and started going out in the world and talking to companies, to company leaders, uh, and that was the thing that came up over and over and over again. And you, you know, you might think if you ask a leader you know, the leader of Nestle, the leader of Bungie, the leader of, uh, you know, Unilever or, um, you know, just kind of Cargill. And just to the person, they were like, we're having trouble getting great people. And, you know, you really think about it. It's like the challenges that we have in front of the industry today and the opportunities in front of the industry. We have this whole, you know, big global challenge of, you know, feeding 9 billion people in 2050 and we need to produce as much in the next 40 years as we have in the last 8,000, and we've got these resource constraints, you know, water, you know, land is limited, water is really limited, um, you know, the environment, we have to think about our footprint much more now. Um, but it's all of these things, you can solve these things if we have the right brains on the, um, you know, thinking about those problems. And I think agriculture historically, because in some cases it's either been viewed as a, you know, if it's farming, it's viewed as a, oh, this isn't a good industry for my son or daughter to go in because, you know, either one, you don't make a good living or you have to work really hard. Um, you know, there's no benefits from that. You know, it's not like you get vacation every year. You don't get sick days. You don't get, um, you know, a pension plan. It's, uh, and every year you take this risk around it. So, you know, a lot of people, I think around the world, especially in countries now, you know, say like China or, you know, even in, you know, you know, Africa is like, no, we don't want um, our sons and daughters to stay on the farm. And then even in the agribusiness sector, up until about 2005, there really wasn't any growth there. So companies had um, a leadership structure and they would bring in new new um, talent, but there was no place for that talent to go. So they would leave and they would go out to, you know, to other sectors but now, you know, in my mind, this is the most important industry in the world. You know, if you want to have an impact on the world, which I think more and more of our, you know, our young people do today or anybody as we think about, you know, being more purpose-driven as, you know, someone in your career rather than just working for a paycheck, you know, this is the food industry, which goes all the way down to my mind, you know, to agriculture, production agriculture on the farm and the input sectors that go along with it, you know, it's, it's absolutely the place to be because you touch the environment, you touch human health, you touch nutrition, you touch development. You, um, it's, you can pitch this industry any way you want to say this is the most exciting place and the place where you can have the biggest impact um, in your career. So, you know, I think that's what we failed to do in the industry, I think we've seen a lot of changes around that um, recently, which is great. And I see the expansion of, you know, 4-H programs and FFA programs and state programs that support um, getting more ag back in the classroom, not just to, you know, to teach them about farming, but to get, you know, students any place more excited about where their food comes from. And I see that as, a, you know, a tremendous change and a very, very positive change from, you know, where we've been when I was growing up. And, again, it was like, oh, you want to get off the farm, right? You don't want to stay on the farm. Yeah, me and my dad were talking about that probably nine months ago. I was debating whether to go to law school or not. I got accepted into law school, and I was that was kind of my plan all along. And my dad, we were kind of talking just a little bit, and he's, he's just like, yeah, I don't, I don't know about all that. I think you're kind of making a mistake not coming to work uh in the agriculture industry. I mean, it's probably the one of the one of the biggest industries in the world. I mean, everybody's got to eat, so Exactly. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, I ended up uh coming over working with him, branching off kind of doing my own thing now, but uh I think that's a really good idea you had on the biggest constraint is uh the need for people and talent in the industry. I totally agree and it's a different level of thinking. Most people, like you said, would think uh, land, water, but I just want to know, bouncing off that, where do you get mm -hmm. your best ideas from? <laughs> uh, that, that's a great question. Um, so I'm, I'm not a, a huge reader 
in, you know, getting ideas that way. I like talking to people. In particular, I like connecting dots between conversations I've, I've had, and that's a great opportunity I've had in my career by being able to um, have a reason to go out and talk to, you know, to business leaders, to go to conferences, to be able to sit down with them and their team and say, you know, why are you – um, what do you see? Why are you running the business the way you are? What keeps you awake at night? What are the opportunities? You know, where do you think things are going? And then what I like to do is to connect those dots and say, um, you know, so I was with a, a supermarket company in California um, just yesterday um, talking to their, um, it's actually their owner and chairman now, and then before that I talked to their CEO and president and then all their tech team I said, oh, well, did you know about this program? They're interested in bringing new products onto the shelves and how they can support um, smaller brands in, you know, kind of novel food products. And it's really hard for a startup food company to get from, say, some level, $2 million of sales to $10 million of sales. That's just extremely difficult. And I said, well, you know, there's a program in Ireland called Foodworks, and they've set it up to, they partner with a retail chain um, it's run by kind of the, the, a government entity. It's identifying entrepreneurs with a promising product, giving them some skills, but they work with the supermarket chain, and then the supermarket chain gives them this special shelf space at the entrance of their supermarket, and these products are featured that go through this program. And if they move, if consumers like them, they do this first in a couple of stores, then they give them more stores, the owner of the supermarket chain said, wow, that's a great idea, right? You know, we, you know, maybe we could do something like that. And so being able to connect the dots and to put, you know, a person in one place and bring them an idea from another geography or another sector or another, um, uh, you know, is really you know, that, that, that's how I like to do it. So, you know, I look at a lot of newsletters. I look at a lot of but, – but it's basically talking to people. That's, that's where my ideas come from is talking to people. And then I've been, always been pretty good about saying, gee, that's a, a powerful idea here. Here's a trend that really has legs to it versus a fad that, you know, might be in here today. And, and some of that's just gut, I think. So. <laughs> One of uh, my main goals – on the podcast, me doing them is I want to do better myself with connecting the dots, and I think that's where my dad's really successful on his end on uh, the agriculture side of things. He does a lot of breaks down a lot of the people on the high end side of thinking and brings it down to somebody who might not understand that. He connects the dots well there. What right. what advice would you have for me to help uh, better me connect the dots in the future? Right. Well, I think what you're doing is fantastic, right? You know, the fact that you're talking to different people and um, you're, you know, learning things. I think the, the harder thing is to say, okay, now I've learned something. What do I do with it? Um, and that's, you know, the challenge because we can get so many ideas today. Information is so available. You can read all the time. You can watch all the YouTube videos in the world and learn how to do anything that it takes a bit of, you know, you need a very wide, um, you know, funnel, but then you need to focus and be able to say, gee, this is actually worth doing or crafting ex an experiment around. Um, I, I read a great book years ago, and it was, it was actually about how to think about your career. And one of the, the points in the book, it's like, you know, we talk it to our young people, especially whenever they're, you know, in graduating high school, going into college, and say, oh, well, gee, what do you want to do, right? You know, what do you want to do in your career? And they have no idea because they haven't been exposed to things. And just like I was whenever, the, you know, my classmate turned around in um, the physics class and said, you should be an engineer, I had never thought about being an engineer. I never thought about going and, you know, certainly not being the director of the agribusiness program at Harvard Business School. And, you know, her point, the author of this book's point was is that, you know, we're operating on so little information and making these very significant life choices. You know, the best thing you could do is to create an experiment. If you think you might like to work in a certain industry or to, um, you know, a certain type of um, job, to go create an experiment to where you can do that on it for a couple of weeks, for a couple of months. And her, you know, the kind of the um, – 
the example she gives is a lot of people think they want to go run a bed and breakfast <laughs> because, you know, it seems romantic, you know, you're, you know, having people in your house and you're doing these things. And at the end of the day, it's really a lot of work because you have people in your house, you have to change their sheets every morning, you have to cook every day, people complain. She said, you know, go work in a bed and breakfast for two weeks and see if you really like this. Um, and I think that's great advice for careers, but I think that's also great advice for you, Jordan, as you're thinking about, you know, bringing in these ideas, it's actually stepping back and saying, hey, wait, that was a good idea. How can I try that for two weeks? What kind of experiment might I craft? Put a boundary of time on it. Um, and that way it doesn't seem like a huge commitment, but you can get over the inertia of, well, I'll get to that later. So, mm -hmm. so that would be my advice to you. Yeah, we have that uh, problem in the office, and I'm kind of the only one taking initiative, you'd say. Uh, right. told my dad I had the idea of, doing these podcasts and he's like yeah, the only only way you're going to figure out if you like it or not is if you're going to if you go out and do right. it so yeah, here excellent. i am doing them so yeah there give you them are. a try you know and maybe it works yeah maybe it works and maybe you find out gee i really don't like that at all but at least you try it now and you can make your next um step based on knowledge rather than just like oh well, i don't think i'd like that it sounds like it's too much work or oh yeah i think it'd really be great but you know i don't have the skills or the you know, the, you know, any distribution channel for it. So it sounds like you're really on a great track about that. But it is hard when you're the only one. And I think that's yeah. often a challenge, you know. Um, I was kind of reading ahead of your list and of the things that we were going to talk about before. And, and one question that you were, are going to ask is, you know, kind of what was the best time of your life? And it, to me, it was when I was at Harvard Business School because that was the first time I was with a group of people that were, they, you know, they were just amazing, right? They were so talented. These were my classmates, you know, so talented, had amazing experiences that I hadn't had before, always willing to do something and try something, had incredible aspirations, um, and again, all very capable, great communicators, um, you know, very intelligent. And so you're just like, wow, this is a great universe to be in, but after that experience, then you kind of go back to the real world. And the number of people you're in that are like that, you know, really narrow down, right? And you're still with a lot of great people, but we all have very different capabilities. So how can you, you know, find that kind of kitchen cabinet maybe, you know, folks that you can dip into and draw on when you have an idea you want to discuss for, you know, compared to the ones, you know, kind of your everyday world of, you know, people that are, you know, thinking about a different set of concerns. They have to feed their families. You know, they want to, you know, um, you know, they need to spend time at home. They, you know, haven't, maybe haven't seen the things that you've seen. So, again, this idea about, you know, creating um, some place that you can go. So I have some friends around the world that when I need intellectual stimulation and conversations, I work on my own now a lot of the time, and it's kind of dull at home. You know, it's me and the dog, and my husband when he comes in at night, but, you know, the dog's not a great conversationalist. So, you know, when I, when I need that intellectual stimulation to discuss an idea, I have people I can call, and, you know, we can have that conversation. Yeah, that's, uh, thanks for the advice. That's a lot of good insight for uh, me and, Hope the listeners are listening on that part. I think that could uh, help benefit them as well. Yeah. You were uh, mentioned a little bit about supermarkets earlier. I know you got a lot of great insight. Uh, we're starting to see this shift now, farm to fork movement. You've talked a little bit about yep. it as we've been talking. Uh, what are your thoughts on where grocery stores are going as a whole in the future, and how are millennials spending their money on food because yeah. millennials yeah. the biggest impact on agriculture right now we're seeing yeah yeah absolutely so so this question about the future of you know supermarkets is one that is uh it, it's anybody's um guess right now but it's clearly the supermarket of tomorrow is you know in five years from now ten years from now is not the supermarket that I grew up with um, and, and I expect what you grew up with. And, and it's changing quite rapidly, but a lot of people are still grappling with that. You can kind of 
One particular impact is, is the move towards e-commerce, so people buying online. And millennials, as we know, many of them, you know, they actually have no patience to go in and to, to go to grocery stores. Probably you don't see it as much where you are. Um, you know, I think behaviors tend to change along the coast first, and then they eventually get to, you know, Kentucky and Kansas City and, yeah. you know, Des Moines. Um, but, you know, there, there's a big shop. So my son's 26. He just got married. Um, but, you know, he and he's really into um, foods. So I won't call him a foodie because he likes all kinds of food. So he's not like a snob about food. Um, he's, um, but he's, you know, appreciates good food and especially the quality of foods and the diversity of foods. But he thinks going to the supermarket is a complete waste of time. He expects to order things online. You know, it's going to show up at the door. I don't want to wait in the checkout stand. I don't want to walk up and down the aisles. Um, that I don't want to find a place to park. I don't want to have to carry groceries out. And so online is, which today is about, you know, 2%, 3% of the food spending is projected to go up to 20%. And the supermarket that I was with in California, they see it going up to 50%. Because it's, and this might be online delivered to your door or online like a click and collect to where, you know, you place an order and you go pick it up at the supermarket and get a couple of other things while you're there. But the idea that the routine food purchasing in particular is going to change. Um, another thing that we're seeing is that, you know, the old days of kind of thinking about a weekly grocery shop, so you make your list, what you're going to, you know, have for dinner every night, that's not a normal mindset anymore you know it's much more spur of the moment like tonight we feel like chinese tomorrow night we're going to eat you know uh thai uh you know going to have sushi here um you know in boston's like sushi is like predominant for everything yeah and it's it's really that has an impact on you know kind of what the call is for the agricultural system to produce but a lot of these um things that you know, we've been, my husband and I have been doing a meal kit service for about a year and a half now to where, you know, every day on or every week on Thursday, we get a box delivered to our front door and there are three meals in there, exactly enough for these three meals. And it's, you know, and so I picked them out online out of a choice of 10 meals. And I pick these three, and my husband, who actually does most of the cooking, comes home, and he looks at the, the, you know, these three cards that come and says, oh, tonight we're having this one. And that's very different, right? So I don't go to a supermarket very much at, at all now because it comes to me at the front door, and that's a huge convenience. It's also um, much less food waste because there's only two of us, so I don't no longer have to buy, like, a whole package of carrots. We get two carrots. Um, and but a lot of it is just we're eating much better because of the things that I wouldn't have picked out that now show up at the door and then we cook because it's here. So that's another change. Um, and it's you know so so all of these things are going on. And then there's this, especially on the part of the millennials, kind of this distrust of big brands. Um, you know, so the idea that the big branded food companies, the CPGs as we would call them, like, you know, um, General Mills and Kellogg's and um, PepsiCo, which owns Quaker, you know, have your best interest at heart when they're selling you these sugary breakfast cereals. Uh, people are really starting to question that, you know, like what's in the box. And so there's a lot more interest in these smaller brands. You know, this one might be more aligned with the values I have as a shopper. Um, and um, so we see these big brands kind of falling out of favor. So a lot of, lot of changes going on, and again, it comes back to, well, what that, you know, store of the future look like? And, you know, one of the things is probably smaller, um, you know, no longer these, you know, 100,000 square foot, you know, um, entities, you know, you're talking 11, you know, something like, you know, between 20 and 35,000 square foot, much smaller assortment, much more fresh and perishable, um, you know, so produce and meats inside, very small center of the shelf because that stuff's showing up on your front, you know, porch uh, every month on some subscription model. And inside that supermarket, probably a lot more things going on to engage you while you're there. So give you an experience. Um, one of the supermarkets I was in in California, they have a wine tasting area. So a lot more ready to eat foods there. And then up in a, a seating area, they can do wine tastings there. They can do food and wine pairings. They've tried running yoga classes. 
Um, they can bring in these other things that, that might be interesting to you to actually get you to come into the store because if not, you're going to shop online. So long answer what to other? it. Uh, we don't know what it's going to look like, but it's not going to look like what it does right now. <laughs> yeah, what other – we're 100% on your side. We were talking about that last night at the dinner table. But uh, what other interesting things are you seeing in these stores, that, like the wine tasting and stuff? Yeah, so I think it's, um, you know, certainly the um, prepared foods and the quality, the the fact that a lot of those now, so they used to come in from these big outside kitchens, now a lot of those are being prepared back in the stores again. Uh, so that's one thing, the, you know, much more emphasis on kind of smaller um, products, smaller brands and interesting categories. I think another thing is a lot more nutrition information in the stores. So, you know, the one I was in, they had make it, made it very easy to see, you know, like which products are low added sugar, which products are, um, you know, kind of more nutrient dense for a product, you know, by doing shelf labels on it. So, you know, a lot more about trying to, to educate consumers, but not doing it in a way that, that's in your face. So I think you might see a move of, uh, you know, you might instead of thinking about it as a grocery store, um, you might think about it more as a, a health and wellness store that because you're going in and making choices of what to eat that impacts your, you know, your health and your wellness. So kind of a very different sh- shift from we're just here to offer all these foods and then you come in and make some choice based on, you know, whether it's on sale or did you see an advertisement? So a lot more curation and a lot more um, education on the part of that retailer on things that, you know, that are important, like nutritionally important to consumers. Do you think we're going to start seeing this movement? Like when do you think this is uh, going to start making a huge impact with what you're saying, get rid of the middle of the stores, right. uh, more shipping, like yeah. that next five years you're thinking? or? Uh, absolutely. Well, you're already seeing it on the coast. Um, you know, so the, you know, the, this, you know, retailer that I was at experimenting now with smaller formats now, it's a, it's traditional grocery retailer and it's coming down in that, that format size, you know, going much more to, a, you know, really amping up that, um, you know, the health and wellness side, so a much bigger perimeter, um, and you see, um, you know, other stores like, you know, uh, you know, Aldi and Little coming in from the, you know, from Europe with a model that's a much smaller store impact. Um, but also, you know, the big kind of signal that this game was on was when Amazon bought Whole Foods. And, you know, that just kind of changed the universe, right? That really said that the future is going to look different from where, it, you know, from where it is today because, you know, here we have Amazon, big online retailer, moving into bricks and mortar stores, but in particular moving into to supermarkets. So the change is already, it's already here. I think the, the tough thing for legacy retailers, the ones that already have a footprint of stores that are of a certain size, is as that kind of store footprint shifts, what do you do with the rest of the space? So you can't just close a store because then you just have big stores in the wrong places. But your store that used to be, you know, 70,000 square feet now only needs to be 50,000 square feet. Now you've got 20,000 square feet that you can think about using for another purpose inside. So maybe that's, you know, turning it into areas that you can use for community um, meetings and events. You know, maybe it's a place to put in a cooking school. Maybe it's a place to bring in, you know, like uh, healthcare professionals and, you know, who have offices there. So I think that the transition is already underway and it's going to, you know, it'll, it'll get to the middle last, but, um, but it will it'll definitely be speeding up. Yeah, that's what we're seeing. Amazon definitely propelled that and uh, made that, made a huge splash, made it a lot quicker, but. We always see that. We know here in Kansas City, where uh, yeah. <laughs> always starts on the coast and makes its way to us. So we're always yep. talking to people out there, like, "Hey, what's going on out there? What 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 ideas are going on? What are you yep. seeing?" Or we're always yep. traveling, seeing what's happening yep. ourselves. Uh-huh. Let's. Uh, I want to learn a little bit more about you, though. Um, do you, uh, here's a question for you. Do you have a philosophy by which you live by? Oh, that's a tough one. You know, I'm. I, hard to, I guess hard to summarize. Um, I always try to leave people with a smile. It, 
I just think that, you know, I tend to be, uh, I'd say I'm a op- pragmatic optimist. So I'm a person that tends to see a glass, you know, half full rather than half empty. But I really believe that everybody has, you know, has potential. And if I can help them, you know, reach their potential or if I can help them have a better day, you know, if I'm in a checkout line someplace and the clerk just looks like they're having a, the toughest day in the world, you know, to be able to engage with that person and to get them to, uh, you know, to, to smile or to just, you know, kind of look up from what they're doing. I, to me, that's a, you know, that's a great investment in my time. Um, I have huge respect for people in, at all levels and in all industries. Um, one of the greatest, you know, things that I've ever done, kind of an honor, is that I was asked to go back and to do the commitment address at the community college that I went to. And now that program's really expanded. It's much more, you know, so there's like, you know, all of these uh, certificate programs, you know, it could be respiratory therapist, diesel mechanic, uh, culinary, um, as well as, you know, students that are there that are going on to, you know, do the first two years of a four-year degree. And I just, you know, have such respect for people at, at every level. So I guess my philosophy is just respect everyone. And, you know, that, that people are, are basically good at heart. I think that, you know, we can give them, a, you know, kind of pulling them back together around some set of community and values. I think that's a thing that's missing right now. So, you know, can we bring them together around food? Can we bring them together around agriculture? Can we celebrate, you know, this... Uh, you know, amazing thing that happens, you know, every year when a, you know, farmer goes out and plants a seed or, you know, you have a calf born in a dairy barn that, you know, just says that we're, we're grounded, you know. I have a bit of a trouble living in Boston. I've lived here for a long time, but the, kind of this, you know, it's a, it's a very, in some ways, elitist in terms of education, and I don't always, you know, agree with that, so... So long answer to philosophy to live by question. I agree with you. Uh, Me and my dad always talk, and we're always just like, what's the biggest thing that brings people together? And the only answer we can ever come up with is food. Thanksgiving, Christmas. Right. Any holiday, pretty much, Fourth of July, gatherings. You guys, everyone usually meets for dinner or has some type of food, so... Right, absolutely. Seems like it brings the most people together. Um, another question I had for you is, what's the biggest misconception about you that people might think? <laughs> well, first of all, since I live in Boston, people might think that I'm from Boston. So, and it's I. So I always start, and um, you know, and gently interject that you know I might live in Boston, but I'm from Kentucky, and that's really where my heart and soul and my groundings are. So, you know, that's uh um, you know, probably the biggest misconception is when you see, you know, Boston and Harvard Business School that, you know, you might put me in one um kind of bucket and I'm just like, you know, I'm just like you, Jordan. I like going out and I like, you know, riding around the farm and you know, I like, you know, seeing things outside and you know, don't spend my, you know, time in, in books and, you know, my head in books and, and big ideas, but, you know, things that can be really relevant and grounded, um, that's, that would, that would probably be it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I understand that, but totally don't blame you for living in Boston. For uh, all, you, oh. all you out there that don't know, Boston's an incredible city. I've uh, been blessed enough to be able to travel there and I've been on the Harvard campus myself and it's incredible Mm -hmm. campus and been to Fenway Park uh, watch the Patriots play it's a great sports city Uh, I love the city all around my sister is actually maybe moving out there yeah Jordan it's a great place to visit it's a tough place to live let's just put it that way so you know you just keep coming in and (laughs) doing (laughs) things I did not intend to be living in Boston after all this time but these 30 yeah, years are my me. husband's. You know, the next 30 years are mine, so we'll see where we end up. <laughs> yeah, and uh, definitely a different perspective when you live places. Yeah. We think that about Chicago. We live there forever, and yeah. we're like, yeah, well, it's great to go for the weekend, but yep, exactly. we'll just stay away from there for a yeah. while. Exactly. Um, so you tell me you enjoy riding horses. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so I you know, was one of those horse-crazy girls. I grew up in Kentucky. You would think it would be easy, but it really wasn't where I was living, and um, I didn't really get a chance. I always wanted to ride. I had a pony who was not trained, um, but I, one of those things that I had opportunities over, you know, at different times in my life to, um, to go and to, to, to ride a little bit, and I really enjoyed I liked the, the kind of the communication, the partnership idea um, between – you know the the rider and the and and the horse that you're on and trying to figure that out. So, it, but it's a tough thing to do around Boston. Fortunately, I have a place right now that I'm riding, but um, it's a tough thing to do. It's an expensive thing to do, and it requires time and things. So maybe that's on my you know my bucket list for when I retire. Seems like you like to travel a little bit. Uh, what are tell me some of the best places you've been? Yeah, you know, so that's a great thing. Probably the the most spectacular place I've ever been is um, in New Zealand on the South Island. Uh, there's areas down there around that area where um, the Lord of the Rings was filmed. It's just the most stunning place of the world. I taught in a in an agribusiness program, executive program in um, you know Queenstown, which is on the, the shores of this amazing lake with the mountains all around it. And it's just the people are warm. It, it, and, you know, friendly, down-to-earth, easy to get around, you know, very um, hospitable. And, you know, that's probably the, you know, just a, other than the fact that it's pretty far away, um, you know, a place that I'd love to spend more time. I um, just came back from Italy. Um, I've had, you know, in my, um, you know, my career, I've had the chance to travel around a lot of places I've happened to been to Italy a number of times and made some good friends over there. So I was just over visiting and um, the weather was horrible. It was absolutely, it's not why I went to Italy for great weather and to tour around. You know, when I go there, I like to, you know, to see friends and to eat great food, but also to talk about their food industry, which is very different from our food industry. You know, it's very small. The producers are small. The, you know, so a friend of mine now um, used to work for a big pasta company. Now he's bought a little cheese plant so, and basically it was a co-op that was failing and, you know, basically has five farmers and each farmer might have 10 cows. So, you know, this is a tiny, tiny plant to where they make this, you know, one particular kind of cheese every day and then also make, you know, yogurt and um, some other products. And so to talk about, you know, kind of, you know, what he's going to do with this cheese business, you know, why he's involved, you know, is there a, you know, it's just a crazy idea or why he might want to do that. Um, I get to go to Ireland um, several times a year. I've done work over there now for the last, you know, eight or nine years. I teach in a course over there, but I've also worked with the Irish food industry. So another place to where I have great friends. But when I go, I don't spend the time touring around. I spend it, you know, kind of talking to to industry folks and thinking about, you know, what we can do to sell more Irish butter or, uh, you know, Irish milk, someplace Irish dairy products. Good deal. Yeah, I've been uh, tell everybody. Seems like everyone I talk to on here has been to Europe, and one of my main goals is to get over there at some point, but uh, haven't yet. Um, you were telling us a little bit about your best time of your life. Uh, huh? On the flip side of things, what's the worst time of your life? What was the worst? Oh, you know that that's a tough one. Probably when both of my my parents went through serious illnesses and, and then ended up both of them, you know, passing away. I'm an only child. I haven't lived in Kentucky for a long time, but I was very close to both of my parents. So, you know, my mom went through cancer and passed away in um, early 2004, which and my dad was there with her and just to, to see him at the end taking um, care of, of her, but then when I lost him in 2010, he and I were very close. That was, but trying to deal with that, you know, not, not being there, not being able to be there every day and then having to make choices about, you know, where do I spend my time? I was able to be there a lot, but you're never there as much as you feel like, you know, you should be. Um, so th- those are, that was probably the worst um, on both of those times, but particularly when my dad, dad passed away. Or when yeah, you were going that. up to the yeah. point of passing away. Yeah, uh, just recently lost my grandpa probably six months back, but uh, couldn't imagine losing my parents. Uh, let's yeah. talk a little bit um, about your involvement in the Women in Agriculture Advisory Board. 
You co-founded the chair, or you were the co-chairman of the first Women in Agra Business Conference in New Orleans seven years ago. Uh, What inspired you to start this? Um, So actually a group came to me and asked me if I would be involved, and they were already running conferences and industry conferences, and they thought that there was an opportunity to – that, you know, for women to get together kind of separate from the industry conference and to talk about industry-related things, not to necessarily talk about women's issues, um, even though some of that relates around how to create a more diverse, work, you know, workplace, but um, how to, you know, just be able to create a network to be able to, um, you know, I won't say provide a safe space, but just provide a place where women could convene and to, to think about industry issues. And um, so we had no idea who would turn up, and we were amazed that the first year that we did it was a one-day program in New Orleans. We had about 120 women there, and that's grown now to we just had um, the, the seventh conference in Denver, and there were about you know, 750, 800 women there. It was actually sold out. They come from all sectors. It's not really aimed at producers, even though, you know, there's just a handful of farmers there. But um, it's really aimed, aimed more at, at women that are in the, you know, the business, uh, you know, the, the, the industry side of it. Because, you know, you can, if you're in farming, you're in business. But it's really more the industry side. And particularly think about, you know, some of it's how to get more women in this, the senior leadership of these companies, um, which has been kind of a slow industry to, to change. But um, it was a fantastic program, and it's been great to see the, you know, the growth and the interest. And um, so I you know, work every year with the um, woman who, who leads that, and particularly working on programming issues to make sure that programming is relevant. That's what, one of the things I like to do to be able to shape that content. Yeah, on our side of things, we, see, uh, we actually see women – pretty involved in agriculture on the farm they might they seem more behind the scenes though uh the men come out and do the conferences and stuff like we have uh seems like the women though run the business side of things and on the back end and run the books and they seem like they're the ones that read my dad's report all the time one question i had was uh what do you think women need to do to address the problem with uh, well, getting involved in Well, I think you're right. Some, you know, some of it is, is to get out there, right? You know, they mm-hmm. – um, and you're right. They, they're there. They're the ones that read the reports. They're the ones um, that, you know, whenever I give a talk to – often to a group of farmers, it'll be at the end and there'll be a time for a Q&A. It's the women that ask the questions. And, it's, you know, the guys kind of sit back and they're still trying to take it in, but the women are engaged and have the questions. Um, so I think they are very involved. I think our census data, you know, like, you know, um, doesn't necessarily show it up. The influence that women have in the, the farm sector than what they really have, you know, on that census form, you typically, you know, you know, you get one blank for the farm owner. And it's really, it can be a joint operation. Um, and it's so, but it's basically, you know, speaking up and getting out there. I see, if you look now, the leadership, you know, at um, FFA or 4-H, I mean, it's, it's the young women that are standing up there on the podiums and running those meetings, and I think that's great for the future of the industry. Let's talk a little bit about Village Capital. Sure. You just tell us a little bit about this company. That's who you're with now. Yeah, and, you know, so I work with Village Capital. I'm on the advisory board for their agricultural sector, so, you know, it's one of the many things that I do right now. Um, Village Capital is runs the oldest um, um, ag accelerator in the U.S. and it's basically a food and ag accelerator. So it's looking to help startups, help young companies, um, and in the case of Village Capital, become ready for investment. Um, and so it has a prescribed curriculum. So every year we'll look at, we'll pick, you know, 12 companies and bring those founders, those business leaders through a, a program and provide them with some. Um, you know, some very structured instruction, but also with mentoring. And then the interesting thing about that is that instead of one of these programs like, you know, Shark Tank, where somebody comes in and pitches their idea and three people who are just hearing the idea for the first time decide do you get money or not, in Village Capital, the choice of who gets funding at the end, and so two of the 12 companies get a level of funding to put into their business, um, it's the cohort in the room. It's a peer selection process. So as these, um, you know, founders 
work with each other, they really start to see, hey, this idea has potential, this leader has potential. And you can't vote for yourself, so that kind of takes that out. But you're ranking the other companies at the end. And one of the things that that, that does, it, it actually takes out gender bias, um, because typically the companies that get funded through, you know, venture capital or, you know, early stage investing are typically male-led. I mean, high, like 90-some-odd percent of them. And here it um, the – and village capital is like 40 to 50% of the companies that get funded are female-led. So it, it's fantastic to, to, to you know, kind of take, level that playing field. And the other thing, it kind of takes out the coastal bias. Um, in the investment community, basically, it's who you know who pitches you, and that puts the companies in the middle of the U.S. at a real disadvantage because you might not have the same network in Kansas City as, you know, a, a startup that's in Silicon Valley or in Boston. So it takes that bias out as well. So it's been a lot of fun working with these young companies and to, to help them grow and to see who's, you know, who's successful and who's been able to keep the companies moving forward. Yeah, I would love to learn a little bit more about the company and dive in some more, but it uh, yeah. looks like we're a little crunched on time. Before we wrap things up, though, I would love for you to tell our listeners – one piece of advice or life lesson that's had the most impact on you? Well, I think it's, you know, to me it's about keep learning. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm hugely curious. I'm particularly curious about how businesses operate. That's where my curiosity lies. So I love to talk to somebody and kind of figure out, you know, if you and I had a conversation, I would be, um, you know, asking, trying to, you know, get my arms around, you know, what's, you know, what's your, your operation look like? You know, what are the most important things, you know, and then start thinking about, gee, and what could you do, could you do next with it? But um, my advice is, you know, to keep learning, to keep being curious, to keep listening as part of that, and, um, and then to, to bring those ideas back in again. So I get energy from that. I know other people don't, but, you know, that's certainly the way that you can, you know, constantly improve. Yeah, that's something I've got from a lot of people is always learn no matter what you're doing. Make sure mm-hmm. you're learning and uh, bettering yourself that way. But I think that's all the time we got. Sounds like you got to go. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to talk to me and share with our listeners a lot of great insight. So uh, I think that's it for our session today, and I appreciate you being on here. Sure. Thanks, Jordan. It was great to talk to you. Yep. I'll talk to you later. See ya. Bye.